Welcome to The Ethics Experts, where we're elevating ethics and compliance, and HR, to the strategic level it's supposed to be. Hello, everybody. Welcome to The Ethics Experts. If it's your first time joining us, welcome. And if you are a returning subscriber, hey, how's it going? Hope you're having an amazing day. You are uh, about to have an amazing afternoon. You see what happens when you subscribe to The Ethics Experts. You get a bonus greeting on every single episode. So hit that subscribe button. I am here with my good friend, Jenny Kim. Jenny, how's it going? What's happening? Good. How are you, Nick? Good. I've been so excited to get you on because you are somebody who uh, I follow on LinkedIn, follow on Twitter. You're, uh, you have a really kind of unique background, a unique perspective, and I think getting you up on the ethics experts soapbox is going to be super eye-opening for our, uh, our listeners. Well, I'm very honored to be here, and actually, I follow you, and I'm impressed by all your videos that you post on LinkedIn. So, folks, if you're listening, definitely check those videos out. Oh, well, thank you so much. So, let's just kind of dive in with your background. Like, how did you get into the ethics and compliance game? Uh, what is, you know, you have a very kind of unique background, and the path that you took into uh, where you're at now, I think, um, has brought you a lot of uh, colors on your palette that you paint with. So, well, you know, how did you, how did you get to where you're at right now? Well, I almost failed second semester physics, and so that meant I wasn't going to become a medical doctor, which is what I wa originally wanted to become, but I still want to combine my love of neuroscience and understanding human beings and their sort of emotional tracks as well as their logical tracks, because once upon a time, I wanted to be like Mr. Spock from Star Trek, but then I realized like that wasn't going to really work. Um, and so then I looked to the law because my great-grandfather was the first chief justice of the Korean Supreme Court after oh, wow. the modern um, yeah, Korean Republic was formed. And then off to law school, and I really wanted to come to Washington, D.C. and uh, become an attorney at the U.S. Department of Justice. But life led me in a different direction, which was the Presidential Management Fellowship. And there I got to work at the Missile Defense Agency and then the White House of Office Counsel to the President, then hopped on along to two law firms, and then finally ended up at the privately held company where I've been at for the last 13 years. And what I would say to all the listeners out there um, is that there is no straight line anywhere. You're going to have a lot of curvy uh, lines to where you need to get to, sometimes random lines that just don't even connect. And it's going to be kind of like COVID-2020, right? It just yeah. loops and loops and loops. And so don't expect that the trajectory or your sense of accomplishment is going to be a straight lineup. Well, that's a hard thing, though, I think, because you look around and it looks like, well, this person just, let, you know, they jumped from this lily pad to the next one to the next one, and it from a distance, it seems like everyone's just ascending on such a straight line. Like, when did you learn that, that lesson? And like, when did you hear that lesson? And when did you actually like digest it? So I think I learned that lesson when I almost failed second semester physics, honestly, right? Because everyone else was trending to medical school and MCATs. And I was like, what am I going to do? I switched to becoming a philosophy major because I had a very influential professor say, you know, study what is important in life, not what just makes you money. Um, and then that was one, I think, probably landmark for me. And I think the other landmark was meeting um, my presidential management fellow boss, uh, the late um, Admiral David M. Altwig, because like we literally met the first day and he's like, I haven't read your resume. And I'm like, OK, that's cool. There's nothing on it. <laughs> um, I'm going to have to prove myself to you anyway. And I think he was a little taken aback because he was just used to people trying to say, oh, and I can do this, this and this. But he opened so many doors for me. He trusted me to sit at tables for him um, at meetings. And I think that was the other point where, like, his career was not um, a trajectory up because he actually tested into the Naval Academy back in the 
40s mm-hmm. when there still was a way to test into the Naval Academy back then from somewhere in upstate New York. And he also taught me the philosophy of it being very important that you are loyal to your peers, loyal to your senior management, and loyal to the people who you work with and who report to you. Like there's that downward loyalty, upward loyalty, and horizontal loyalty. Because he said at the end of the day, people are what make you look good. And at the end of the day, like you have to assume responsibility for your actions and for who you hire. And you can't just kind of dump that on someone. And those were like the moments where, you know, I figured out, hey, um, maybe life is not one straight line. Yeah. But actually, you have to take moments to jump from lily pad to lily pad and sometimes sink if you're built for um, famine, not for feasting. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, do, do those types of things. But those were the moments that I learned. And it also when, when I was at my second law firm and the partner left as soon as she recruited me, that was another moment I learned. I have to relearn how to do everything. So you, uh, there's so much to kind of unpack there, but let's start back when you switched uh-huh. into philosophy. What, what was yes. it about philosophy that, uh, that was the kind of obvious door for you to walk through after hearing that, that advice from, from that influential professor. professor. Yeah. I think, you know, I love reading any literature. So, but when you sort of start looking at literature from a philosophical perspective and like connect the dots around Aristotle and the cave mm-hmm. um, and Plato and, you know, all those different Nicomachean ethics and all those different elements of where we are and where we come from, it's trying to understand the human psyche and also give me a sense of inner calm that when things don't go my way, I have to be patient. Mm. And I had to learn that in college because clearly like experiment number one, medical school failed. So I had to find experiment number two and to sort of understand that your path is your path and it may not look as easy and as lovely and as pretty as everyone else's path, but you still have to appreciate other people's paths, not envious, but congratulate right. them on it and also appreciate and learn from it too, right? I think we have a little bit of that with social media right now. Everybody totally. thinks the Instagram life and Facebook life is this perfect life, but actually it's one snapshot of that moment. And so you have to remember like in the long life lives that we all hopefully will live, everything is a snapshot of a moment and how you respond to that snapshot is what really is going to define you to whether you're going to be successful under your own terms of success or whether you're going to let other people define your terms of success. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, profound things that you just said in there. Um, you see these this this mosaic of snapshots, and you start yes. comparing to your own life, and you start seeing, man, I'm you know I'm falling behind or or whatever, and you can you can start to let that envy cre- creep in. Yes. But it's it's an envy of of a phantom. It doesn't even it doesn't yes. even exist. You know, it's like no. it's like you hear about or you read about these you know young girls who have these body images because they're comparing to these pictures in the magazine, not yes. knowing that they're like all totally photoshopped. It's that yes. kind of a of, of a dynamic. But we're inundated with it and bombarded with it when we spend our time on our phones. I mean, it's just an insane thing. It turns into this really crazy cycle. And it also, I think, disables you from understanding other people's pain. Yeah, when right. you're that obsessed with the image yeah, good point. that is projected, right? It disables you from a, being able to understand other people's pain. And I firmly believe that you cannot become a good lawyer or compliance officer if you don't understand other people's pain. And I, the funny thing is people often ask me, like, how do you become a good lawyer? Um, and my answer usually is unlearn everything you learned in law school and become human again. So that's, um, and so why is that? Why is that? Why is that the answer? 
Um, having worked in several law firms, I would say that it's easy to put together memos for your client and expect them to follow that to the T. But then you reach a moment when you're in-house counsel and you deal with accounting, finance, HR, your government affairs people, you realize compliance is not their top three objective. Yeah, right. As a matter of fact, compliance may not be even in their top 10 objectives. They have their families and their lives to consider, right? And how do you make it easy for them so that they can perform on their worst days and even when they make their worst mistakes and they don't take the entire enterprise down at the same time, right? right. That's the sort of resilience you have to build in your compliance programs because otherwise um, you will not be sleeping at all at night. Well, and again, sometimes uh, when you're in-house, um, it can kind of turn into a bit of an echo chamber. And so I kind of yeah. came from the finance world um, and, you know, you can pass a memo or a presentation over to your colleague and say, how does this look? And they say, yeah, yeah, this looks great. Yeah. But not kind of remembering that that's going to somebody who's maybe not an accountant or not a lawyer no. or not, you yes. know, who doesn't have this sort of specialized training that you have. So I yes. love that advice to say, like, forget all those things, because if you don't, then you're just going to like our job is largely to be a translator. And I think that's part yes. of the job as a lawyer. You have to translate this law into something that's actionable for a business or to your client. And, you know, a lot of these things kind of uh, traverse across different industries. Um, but, but particularly in the compliance game, when you have to translate not only just into sort of like layman's terms, but also into salespeople terms and into operations terms and in strategy, you know what I'm saying? Like these different departments yep. that also have their own languages. Yeah, you, know, you have to understand their vocabulary because otherwise you will end up with Amelia Bedelia moments all over the place. <laughs> you will have this entire sense of satisfaction that, hey, I explained myself really well. And meanwhile, the other side is just like, okay, what, what was she talking about? Uh, I don't know. Um, what do you think she was talking about? And then you're not going to get what you need to get done. And I think, you know, part of the problem is also like everyone thinks annual training fixes everything. And the reality is you sort of have to have constant informal check-ins. Because right. just as, you know, as when you have the most profound conversations sometimes in the car with your parents, that's when you have those moments of eureka and aha, that something's not getting through to your clients who need to implement this well so that the rest of the enterprise can be held safe from government investigations and enforcement. Huge point. Because, um, I mean, how do people change their mind? I think we think, this is my sort of broad operating theory, that we all view ourselves as these logical beings. We take in ones and zeros. Yeah. We uh, weigh the pros and cons, and we land on a logical answer, and we move forward you know, accordingly. I think we don't actually act that way. I think we're a lot more emotional. I think we backfill with logic, and we backfill with rationalizations. Yeah. But then if you kind of unpack that a little bit, like how many times have you changed your – how many times have you kind of – recognize that you changed your mind, but you can't even really sort of point to the moment that like the light bulb turned on. It was really kind of, it changed over time through a bunch of different yeah. interactions and so forth. And I think when we take that sort of, for lack of a better term, just as shorthand, like that ones and zeros thinking and apply that to our, our training, when we say, okay, great, I just have to download this training into someone's brain and then they're gonna act yeah. differently. Well, they're yeah. not, right? It's kind of to no. echo what you're saying, you got to have those constant interactions and those those micro learnings along the way or those, you know, those, those little reminders along the way and those little multiple touch points of influence throughout the life or throughout the year, whatever, in order to really increase the odds of somebody's mind changing because if their mind doesn't change, then their behavior is not actually going to change, you know? No. So you, we're really like behavioral change specialists when you're right. dealing with compliance, right? right. And right. 
just as you can't lose 50 pounds overnight, um, you're not going to be able to change people's minds about certain things overnight either. And actually, Adam Grant had this great column in the New York Times mm -hmm. um, about a month or so ago about the importance of really listening to the other side to understand where they're coming from and where their base assumptions are, or to put it in another parlance, is to understand people's pain points. And I don't, I don't think as compliance folks, we do enough of that, right? We're so, we have to, we have to kind of meet metrics and we're in such a hurry to meet metrics, right? That we sometimes forget there's a human being on the other side and they want to help you meet metrics, but they have pain points and they don't feel like you're listening to their pain points. And so they just get frustrated with you. And then you're, you get frustrated with them because they're not following the entire procedure written down to a T and then the two just end up colliding and nothing gets done. And we wonder, and then we just automatically assume they want to be non-compliant, right? When the reality Correct. is we haven't done a, a good enough job understanding their pain points. So to help them understand like how this can be something that will help them with their pain points and also making some adjustments in lieu of their feedback, right? Because we Great don't point. know how everything runs, right? And so to understand that maybe, hey, um, people are not going to use their desktops and laptops because they're traveling all the time. The platform needs to be mobile friendly, tablet friendly, like thinking through those small things that we often take for granted is going to be really, really important. And then also thinking through what kind of communities do they live in? I know in sort of the compliance issues I deal with, with you know, anything of value to um, government employees, when you live in small communities where like everybody knows each other and you constantly see each other, like Where's the line of anything of value, right? right? And it's listening to those pain points and kind of helping them think those through and also making a risk adjustment as well. You can't, I mean, we're talking about influence at the end of the day, yeah. right? I need yeah. to influence someone's behavior. I need to influence their actions and I need to get them to care about what I care about. And you can't just um, like count on their uh, virtue, because it's not, no. it's not necessarily a virtue thing. They might not no. have the context for it. They might not understand the implications of it. To your point, they have their own list of like priorities, keep my yeah. job, pay my mortgage, yeah. pick my kids up from school. Right? Like, they got their cool, whole yeah. bunch of stuff going on. And you, know, you can never sell without empathy. And I no. think if we can, you know, I think you know, this decade we're moving toward effectiveness. We, we, we have all the dashboards now. We get that we're going to need to keep the, the company out of trouble and keep the CEO out of jail. You know, now this compliance 3.0 thing is about true effectiveness. It's about elevating to the strategic lever. Um, it's, I mean, it's kind of what we're talking about. I mean, everything you've been sort of, uh, you know, talking uh, about is this empathy thing. Understand the pain points. Under, understand where someone's coming from. Meet them where they're at. Build a, a, a relationship that's not once a year where I play a video in front of the, yeah. the room or something. Um, why do you think it's so hard for folks in this role who are largely like smart people who care? That's that's what I call them. They're largely highly empathetic. Why is it hard for them to sort of like, for lack of a better term, to weaponize that and build more influence in their organizations to achieve these goals that are true risk reducers? You know what I mean? So I had a couple of moments of um, light bulb moments on this because we have been trained in most of corporate America to be so efficient, mm -hmm. right? And, the, and to, to, to get as many <clears throat> tasks done during the day that we can. We're optimizers, right? We're optimizing for everything. And I think we tend to probably look down on people who can't optimize like us and can't see the problem as quickly as us and can't see the solution as quickly as us. 
It's not something we do consciously, but in the hurry to get stuff done, it's something we probably all do subconsciously, right? Why can't they just do that? Why can't they just get it? Like, why don't they just understand? Why can't they just accept it, right? Um, and that's like, when you enter those moments, that's when you have to step back. I think, you know, also the compliance profession as a whole, we don't encourage enough curiosity, right? Just Great random, point. spontaneous, serendipitous curiosity. Because the more curious are, you are, the more you will see like disparate points and how to break down silos and not just live in your little world. Because if you, compliance is one of those things that I think people have a hard time wrapping their heads around it because it's not just about complying with the law. It's about understanding how all these things operate together, the software, the people, the right. system, right? And how the back end stuff works, how the front end stuff works, right? How the Kim Kardashians of the world, the stars appear, right? What they say, mm -hmm. how does that impact us later from a litigation strategy or from, you know, following through on our promises strategy. It's very, it's very holistic. And to just treat it down to a dashboard, that dashboard is one tool exactly. to try to understand one part of compliance, but it's not addressing the entire discipline of compliance. Yeah, it's, um, it's like two dimensions yep. on a single facet of this three-dimensional, or actually four-dimensional, if you uh, yeah. throw time in the mix, shape that we as compliance and ethics folks need to actually manage effectively to do our jobs and truly crowdsource risk, risk management. Yes, and then the other thing, Nick, that I think we really need to do a better job is find champions within every part of the organization, right? Oh, yeah. People who will help us and raise issues to us that, you know, algorithms and software can't identify for us, right? Those are the people that we really need to cultivate and kind of push on through, and they know where everything is. They know where all the bodies are buried. They know exactly why something failed or something works, but they haven't felt like they're important enough to be part of the solution because no one talks to them, right? Find those champions, find those eyes and ears, because you as a compliance official or a lawyer, you can't do it by yourself. Right. You need people on your side to help you augment the software and the technology and the platforms and data because that's just one piece of, again, of that 3D, 4D dimensional chess. It's you've got to have the people sort of backfilling because, again, algorithms and data and everything else, it is a reflection of what we think is important and what we have created. It is not identifying what we have not been able to identify yet. Right. And just coding the algorithm appropriately isn't necessarily going to drive yeah. the right behaviors across the thousands of people that are in your no. organization. No. So. No. You know, the best compliance folks, the best ethics folks recognize, I think, that their job is at some level culture. Culture is just a sort of an amalgamation of all the behaviors in the organization. Their job is risk management. And to your point, they can't do it on their own. They have to no. start to crowdsource that. And I love how you talked yeah. about finding these champions. If you were coming into an organization brand new, like, where does that fall on your list of priorities uh, and how do you go about sort of starting to chip away at that iceberg of finding and locating these people that know where the bodies are buried and know, you know, are these like little, these many sort of sources of power within the organization? Um, so I, when I came to uh, the company I currently work for about 13 years ago, I literally scheduled lots of conference calls, right? Just to get to know people, try to understand what their needs are. Um, and I, I also started to realize that the initial responses were not the truest responses. Not that they're lying, but it's like the more sanitized 
version of the response, right? Yeah. It's like, why are you going on a diet? Oh, I want to be healthy when the real reason probably is I have a college reunion coming up or <laughs> I want my ex to regret that he or she ever broke up with me, right? right? Um, and it's figuring out those and then starting to make more of the in-person trips to the various, like the headquarter office and just kind of meeting people randomly in the cafeteria and sort of building and then asking them what you can do for them. Because at the initial point, they're not going to know. But as you slowly work with them, um, make sure that you bend over backwards to help them with whatever they need that you can help them with. And then as they develop that sense of safety with you, not all people are always going to trust you, but that sense of safety, right? And that, that you really kind of understand their pain points, then mm-hmm. that'll start kind of creating those champions. Now, once you create one champion, does that mean that champion stays there forever, right? Because people change jobs nowadays. We right. want to grow and we want to move on. So you always need to think about the talent pipeline, sort of in accounting, HR, um, government, public affairs, and business. You always need to think about that talent pipeline and you always need to keep your door open to anyone who's curious about anything about why certain things work a certain way and who's interested in getting mentoring from you or counseling about how to deal with certain business people. Because as a compliance person, you're going to get a lot more exposure to a lot of different folks yeah. than a lot of your usual clients. So you can actually help them, mentor them, coach them through some difficult sort of business situations um, as well and sort of see it as both like a, a totally open door where you can help each other kind of be the best that you can be. And then once people start to see that, then they'll start to sort of be willing to call you, be willing to email you, text you, you know, FaceTime with you, whatever, mm-hmm. in order to kind of keep objectives going in the right direction. Because they, they'll start to believe that you really care about doing the right thing, right? So often people are super cynical about what pops out of our mouths versus what we actually do. And so the other thing is you actually have to model it, right? And sometimes that's hard. But you actually have to always check yourself that way, too. I mean, we have this opportunity to kind of be like locksmiths within our organizations and pick all these locks that are these different personalities and these different, you know, uh, motivations and different departments and so forth. You know, something I was struck by or struck with as you were talking is like you just kept saying, like, you have to understand pain points. You have to understand them. You have to show them that you actually care. I mean, we're kind of at some sort of elementary level just talking about building a basic relationship. But how have you seen other folks not show that they understand, not being able to empathize, and how have you seen basically like their efforts sort of fall flat as they've tried to push change and stuff like that? Um, it's when you do the top-down, yeah. right? The top-down hierarchy sort of thing, like I said it, I'm in charge, and therefore you need to listen to me, right? Um, and so that usually falls flat on most people now because for those, uh, those listeners who have children or elderly parents who live with them, like I have elderly parents, like they don't, they hate being told what to do, totally. right? You sort of have to get them to eat their greens and vegetables hidden in the system. They're not <laughs> going to do it just because I told you so. Right. Um, so you have to figure out, you, those are the folks that usually um, are the least successful in implementing new changes and kind of implementing like 50 page documents, right? Who remembers what was on page one and page 50? Who no even one. gets to page 50? Yeah, who even gets to page 50? Right. Um, and so those are the folks, but th- that's what the folks who are like that, that's what they're comfortable with. And that's a huge opportunity to work with them, yeah. to coach them, and to make something that they do successful if they're willing to listen, right? But sometimes people go on a, a little bit of a power trip when you're a compliance officer, right? And you're like, I'm in charge and I'm the sheriff, right? 
realize that nobody really wants to talk openly with the sheriff. People just want to talk to the person at the diner, at the bar, right? That's why, you know, it, that's, that's why those things are so effective is because people are willing to really kind of delve out their pain points because they don't feel like you're going to use it a wep- as a weapon against them. Great point. They want to talk to the people that get them, that yes. understand them, that know where they're coming from and to your point that aren't going to quote unquote get them in trouble. Yes. Um, and, you know, I, I guess at some level I get the allure to kind of use, the, you know, pick up this sort of compliance hammer and swing it because yeah. many compliance folks don't have that power in their organization. So Make to sure. the extent that they have sort of some regulation that they can sort of stand on top, you know, it's kind of like when I put my son in charge of my daughters, you know, yeah. he's, he, you know, he thinks he's like, uh, he thinks he's the dad or something, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> um, but I love how you said, hey, when you're coming into the organization and you want to start building those relationships, see what you can do for people. What are some ways that you can actually do that? Like somebody who's listening to this that says, man, I need to start doing some of this stuff. What are some types of things that you could do for someone to really exhibit and prove out that others focus, as we call it, that sort of you know serving other people first to allow them to sort of start dropping their guard and perhaps look at compliance or look at ethics in sort of a different way that's not about getting them in trouble? Uh, the first thing is when someone does something for you, please thank them. I know that that, that seems so simple and yeah. strange, but you really have to thank people, right? Um, I do a lot of handwritten notes. I do a lot of emails. I do a lot of texts, but you really, really have to thank people. Like one thank you goes a really, really long way because right. so many people feel like they're lost in the rush of objectives and optimizing, right? I think the second thing is when someone does a good job, make sure their supervisor knows, right? Smart. Because most supervisors have like 8, 10, 12 direct reports, and they have no clue sometimes what some of the direct reports are doing. Make sure that the supervisor knows. Yeah, and to that point, I don't mean to in- interrupt, but... No, please do. A, like, not every supervisor is super dialed in on whether every single person is thumbs up, thumbs down. Many yeah. of them are kind of in the middle, yeah. and they're like, you know, I don't know. I think they're good. I, they may or may, may not be. You going as an outside source, as a sort of an independent third party, validating things about that that subordinate or whatever can do so much not only for the for the subordinate, but also for that manager or that supervisor to to like let that person unleash. Right. It could give them that Mm -hmm. confidence to say, man, this person is great. And just hearing that thing just can allow them to really, you know, stop micromanaging or to, you know, have more security with respect to that individual's potential performance or impact. And I think it's also finally pay attention to the small personal details they let drop yeah. in um, spontaneous moments, because like remembering someone's birthday, um, remembering that, you know, it's going to be their kid's first day of school, or if, you know, a dearly loved one has passed away, right? Taking care of those small things means that, you know, even though you're a team, that team means that it's a group of people who care about each other and want each other to su- su- succeed. Right. It's not about like... You're just like a, a lump of stuff together, right? Right. It's you're a team and you care about each other. And it can be across the company. It doesn't have to be just because they report to you or they're your boss, right? It can be also your peers mm-hmm. um, and other people too because you did not get here by yourself. I, I hate to point that out to everyone, but you didn't get here by yourself. A lot of unseen kindnesses were passed down to you. Totally. And somehow you're not going to be able to pay those back. So you have to pass them on. Yeah, you can't pay them back. You have to pay them forward. So yeah. let's let's dive in. Let's dive into mm-hmm. mentoring, and let's talk about kind of the untapped, like 
the untapped oil well that is sort of mentoring in general, but maybe even more in particular with respect to the ethics and compliance game? So mentoring, the moments are casual and there's no formal mentorship. I think formal programs tend to get very um, awkward. Yeah, and instead, I agree. It's, yeah, instead it's just having conversations with people, going out for coffee when we can go out for coffee again, having a Zoom call or something, and just being able to ask advice of someone and kind of bounce things around is hugely important. Now, for all the mentees out there who think, I don't have anything to offer a mentor, so what do I do? Yes, you do. Right. Think about what you have to offer. You may be more well-versed on social media. Yep. Your mentor may not. You may understand GPT-3 and AI, and your mentor may not. You know, Think about the things that you bring to the table, because everyone brings something to the table. And I think where mentoring is really important is I see a huge disconnect right now between how everyone else thinks and how like the younger generation is not able to see senior people's thinking processes. One of the things that uh, Admiral Altway did so well is because he dragged me to every meeting and made me sit there. At the time, I didn't understand why I was sitting there because I'm like, I don't know anything. What? Blah, blah, blah. But at the time, I didn't understand it. But later on, I understood. He showed me how senior people think, right. how they digest information, how they accept information, right? And how important it is that the messenger be the right person sometimes, depending on who the senior person Great was. Point. Those are lessons that I absorbed unknowingly and unwittingly when I, you know, followed Admiral Altwig around everywhere. And that is the sort of thing that when the big thing that we need to do is to make sure that the next generation understands whether they agree with that decision-making process or not is secondary. Correct. But the first thing is to understand how it operates because then you will have a chance to actually get up there and someday change it. But you also have to wait your kind of moment in time because timing is everything, right? Timing is part of that 4D dimensional chess right. and you have to think about timing and you have to think how like people absorb information because you may think the senior folks are logical but they're not logical all the time they're like us they'll totally. have bad days they'll fight and they too are having an emotional reaction to everything i think Brene brown says it's best like we think we're thinking creatures who feel but we are actually feeling creatures who happen to think yeah that's that's absolutely spot on and you know to that point, you can never change something that you don't understand. You can never influence no. something that you don't actually understand. And, you know, something else that I think mentees, you know, look, to your point, right, that we, we live in a fast-paced world, everybody's inundated, everybody has a, to, uh, you know, a to-do list that's longer than their arm, that they yeah. can't get to everything, right? Like, everybody's stressed. So sometimes a mentee, to your point, they don't want to raise their hand and say, hey, mentor me. You know, um, there's not these sort of really effective sort of formal structures no. that allow like true mentorship to happen. It has to sort of organically happen. But happen. to your point, a lot of mentees, they don't even want to try to engage in that because they're like, well, what do I bring to the table? table. I can tell you what, you know, something I tell um, folks is just like, what does a mentor get out of it? Like, why is somebody being a mentor? Some of them are maybe ego driven and they want to, you know, feel like, you know, hey, I'm big and I'm smart. That's, you know, that's a little obnoxious. I think most of them who are actually engaging in it is they're trying to help. And to your point, they're trying to pay, pay forward lessons that were taught to them. And, you know, again, you can't pay it back. You, you can pay it forward. So like just that thank you or just absorbing that as a, from a mentee's perspective and just taking that wisdom and putting it in, into practice, that in itself is of value, let alone, you know, of course, you can teach them about texting or social media or these other things that are sort of more germane to your particular generation. 
but just absorbing that and you being a sponge versus a rock for the, you know, the wisdom that they're trying to pour out to you is in itself a payback to that mentor. Correct. And I think we often think of mentoring as like someone who has to be senior and more experienced, but actually there's a increasingly new concept called reverse mentoring where more senior and experienced people actually learn Mm -hmm. from more junior people on the skill sets that more junior people would have a natural inclination and affinity for just because they grew up in the generation. Right. And it's, it's, I think this is, again, we go back to curiosity, no matter what stage of life that you're in, you always have to be endlessly keep that sense of curiosity within you. Cause if you stop being curious, you're, you're becoming a mummy, right? You're becoming ossified, but right. it's that you're, you're limber because you're going to be curious, right? And if you're not curious, you can't even build the knowledge networks that you need to create within your organization, both internally and externally to make sure that you can get to the best information at the time. And oftentimes it may be to someone who is much more junior sure. because again, the senior people have their issues. The middle ranks have their issues. But then there's like the day-to-day operations people who make everything run behind the scenes who are often not touted, but they're like the unsung heroes most of the time. And so you need to find those people and really appreciate them and kind of understand what their pain points are too. But that curiosity, that's how you build the ligaments and tendons that keep all the bones and the muscle kind of all connected, is that you have to think about it that way instead of just thinking, all right, up, down, linear. It's not that linear. It's, It's much more of a Gordian knot than people would like to admit. I love that picture. Um, and, you know, wars are won by the people in the foxholes on the front lines, not by the generals pushing around things on a map. You know what I'm saying? Talk no. to me a little bit about no. what, what you mean by knowledge networks and how you've been able to build such a strong knowledge network, not only within your own organization, but also externally in the broader ethics and compliance community. So um, knowledge networks to me are building that system of people that you can contact to ask questions who will then introduce you to someone else who, who may know something about it and just kind of sort of keep on building it out. There's a great um, book by Kelly Huey called Build Your Dream Network. And I've learned a lot from her lately because she's, she always says, like, figure out who your deep connections are, who your superficial connections are, but they're all important, right? And then audit them regularly, right? Who have you, you talked to in a while? Who do you need to get back in touch with? How do you bring value to the relationship, right? And networks are how opportunities are found, knowledge is found, and it's and serendipity, frankly, is found. Because totally. sometimes some people, a career change happens because they happen to have a conversation with someone. And then I think it's also remember that your network does not need to be all these beautiful people who have seemingly lots of power. It can be peers. It can be people who are starting out in their career. It can be you know, people that have nothing to do with your career, um, but have more to do with your hobbies. Because you don't know when something will collide and connect because it's constant Lego pieces, right? It's a constant Lego, or sometimes if it's inartful, it's Play-Doh. And then <laughs> pull it apart and mash it in again. Right. But that's how you can ask people the questions, right? Because I think everybody goes to Google and to encyclopedias thinking, oh, I'll find everything in there. But so much of like compliance is almost like craft. So much mm-hmm. of craftsmanship and the little tricks of that carpenters use, that bricklayers use, that's not on the web. Correct. That's not in a book. It's passed down generation to generation. And frankly, so much of the practice of law is passed down generation to generation too, because the written the written articles of law are not the only thing that people use to 
sort of adjudicate. There's a lot of other pieces too. And that's where knowledge networks are so important, like knowing all the people in the system, government, corporate, nonprofit, academia, your local neighbor, right? Like knowing all those folks and kind of piecing that all together constantly is important. And how you build it, you just keep up with people. Um, I send out about 250 holiday cards every year. I still keep in touch wow. with my elementary school teachers who are still living. Um, and that handwriting process, I know people think I'm crazy, but that handwritten process is like my only good deed of the year um, of catching up with them, of listening to them. And I love it when I get letters back and then I do another letter. Like it, it kind of begets itself. Totally. And that's how it's, and you have to look at it from a long-term investment. You can't say, all right, in a month, I need to see this because I've, I've done this since I was eight years old. So I've done it, you know, close to 30, yeah, 35 years. Wow. Um, and so like, this is the sort of investment you need to make early on. I was lucky. My mother is crazy. So my mother made me do it like right on blank sheets of paper first to make sure everything was straight. And then you can transpose it to the card. Um, Very so good. that was my mom. Yeah. So that was my mom. So she started me on that road, but like people ha, ha, like Nick, what's your reaction when you get a handwritten note? You're super excited because it's not I junk it. mail. Yeah. I'm a psychopath yes. and I save it. I'm like, ah, someone yeah. actually, uh, they put their hand to this, you know? Yes. <laughs> So, I mean, that's, that's the reaction from all of us. And it's, it's so lovely to hear from people in writing. And, you know, it goes back and forth. And also, I frankly think better when I write. So, but those are the touch points that you, you do. And when you people, remember when people have babies and, you know, try to take care of them and kind of the small landmarks and milestones in their lives, that's how you build it because you do care and you want to show that you care. It just takes that extra effort. And you've talked about it from, hey, this is a long-term perspective and this yeah. is an investment. Um, why do you think people aren't willing to do it? You know, it's, it's almost like people say, well, I don't have time to, to exercise or I don't have time to yes, sort of take, take care of my body. It's, it's, it's such an opportunity. And I just wonder, like, do you think, do you think this is going to be something that goes away uh, as this next generation that's even, you know, more transactional than the previous generation comes to the forefront. What opportunity do you think there is in folks sort of really trying to build this thing out? You know what I mean? I, I think it's going to be with respect to the handwritten notes and keeping in touch and kind of building those knowledge networks. It's going to have to be somewhere in between. Yeah. As we automate so much, if something needs to be overridden, then a human has to override it. But do you know the human being who can actually override it? Right. And that's yeah. where knowledge network is really important. So um, when you get all these emails on, you know, for example, on data privacy from a, 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 a mailbox at a big, you know, retail retailer, and you're just like, okay, these emails need to stop, but I don't right. even know who to call because no one responds to that return email right. box. That's when you need a human being to call another human being and to help you figure out which human being in that retailer organization can actually stop those emails with a click or two. Right. And I think we tend to underestimate how important human beings are because we automate everything. We're like, oh, the app will take care of it for us. Right. But the app was created by a human being to override it. You know, we need a human being too. And I think a lot of Star Trek original episodes, original series episodes kind of highlight that, the Daystorm, <laughs> right? Richard Daystorm, the scientist who built this MI5 and it's great, but it also holds all of this emotional resentment and fear right. that he'll never succeed again and so we just have to think about that as we build out all these tools that it's not stagnant right and we we encountered this with the unemployment situation at yep. the beginning of covid cobalt who, who knows cobalt because the systems weren't created to handle this 
and nobody kept hot cobalt after the 80s. So nobody knew how to fix it either. Yeah. So we have to think about these things, I think, constantly and not assume like, oh, that knowledge is old. You just have to dump it, right? Because that just doesn't – and the Air Force recently put out an RFP to reverse engineer some part in one of their bombers because nobody has the blueprints. And so, crazy. you know, this, yeah, it's crazy. But, but it's a picture is, of what you're talking about. Yes. So we will – I think we're going to get back to like where we need to know human beings because you can put your resumes in the ether, right? And no one's going to pick up on it. A human being has to act on it. And I think that's why like second chance hiring, hiring people with criminal records and enabling them to get opportunities in this country has been so hard because so much of our HR system is now asynchronous yeah. or yeah, it's, it's an algorithm. And if you don't have the right keywords, then you're not going to get picked up. Yeah. There's a, the resume just gets an automatic X yes. on it and nobody even ends yeah. up seeing it. Yeah. Um, but again, to your point, um, you know, I don't know. I mean, we found this in our old business and a lot of what you're talking about is really resonating with me because like some of these old school sort of tactics and these old school things of a handwritten note or actually caring about the other person or caring about your client or whatever, it's like a breath of fresh air in this like yeah. faceless transactional world where everything is automated. Like yeah. it's not only like just good practice, but it's, there's also like an opportunity in it if you Could can lean be. into it. You know what I'm saying? Yes. No, it's a, there's huge opportunity because one good relationship will beget others. And if you have at least 10, then that's just going to sort of migrate out. And there's so many benefits to the relationships other than your mental health, right? Positivity to your mental health, but also to helping others. Like if you help others, there's no better feeling, frankly. Totally. Help someone find a job, help someone find an opportunity, help someone resolve some issues in their lives. There's just no better feeling. And I think sometimes because we're so looking within, we sometimes tend to forget that. Yeah. And, you know, the nodes of a network, that's not a linear thing, right? Like if no. there's, if there's no. two, if there's two nodes in the, the network, there's one, there's one yep. sort of connection point. If there's three, that starts to go up on an, I forget, I forget what the actual equation is, but it's not a linear thing. So like, that's no, a great investment to make to continue to build those, that network, because that can turn into a knowledge network. And you, at some level, if you're staying on top of it and, you know, reaching out to folks and staying top of mind, then when you need something, the odds of you getting put in touch with that right person, even, even, even if it's, even if it's not one of the actual nodes in your network, it's just going to yes. be so much higher. You know what I mean? No, so much higher. Yeah, no. And I think, and then don't, don't make assumptions. Like I, I remember when I was doing criminal justice reform, um, someone who was in a, was in a, the then um, U.S. attorney for Alabama was in a knitting circle was another colleague, at, former colleague at work. And no one would think that, right? But like, you never know where you're going to find your totally. connections and through where. So like knitting circles, knitting stresses me out. But for my work colleague at work, it's very soothing and stress relieving. And she was in this knitting club. And it's like, wow, small world. Like everything is much smaller than you think. Um, and you don't know who knows whom. And that's why you always have to put your best face forward, your best manners forward. And remember that compliance is about soul, right? It is really about having a soul. Yeah. Because if you don't have that, then it's just, you might as well just give it over to a machine and press just buttons. But it's trying to resolve issues and resolve pain points. And that's why it's essential to remember that it has a soul. And it goes back to what you were saying. The first thing you need to yeah. do is kind of forget what you learned from the textbooks in, in yeah. academia or whatever and remember how to be a human again. And if you can, Amen. if you can hold both of those things, now you yeah. can, now these two different things can interact and you can sort of actually create some synergy between these two different sort of sides of your brain, for lack of a better term. Or um, have different identities for yourself. Like 
you know, I think Beyonce said that she has different identities when she goes on stage, right? Mm -hmm. Then create those different identities for yourself internally and like think about the roles that you're playing instead of thinking like just one. So talk to me a little, I mean, you've been in the ethics game for a while. How have you seen it change, say, over the last kind of 10 years? And then let's kind of talk about, if you can pull out your crystal ball, where where you think it's going to go and what sort of types of separation, you know, you, you see coming down the pike. So the last 10 years, um, the biggest change I've seen is a reduction of PowerPoint slides, honestly. Okay. Uh, Thank goodness, yeah. You know, yes, yeah, reduction of PowerPoint slides. Um, because when I got into this business, everything was very PowerPoint heavy, right? Click, 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 one right. hour long, two hour long, three hour long. Um, I think a lot of that's reduced and it's um, been much more animations, um, key touch points, email reminders, right. um, sort of more things like that, more technology platforms to leverage. Um, I think going forward, what I would like to see actually is to have the high touch because technology can be more effectively leveraged. Okay. What because, do you mean by that? So to have more customer interaction as opposed to less. Yeah. Because I think what the PowerPoints did was remove what the VTA trainings, right? The automated trainings did is remove. Yeah, you're talking at folks. Going, yeah, yes. yeah. But what you really want is to be to to talk with them, have mm. more informal workshops. And to really leverage technology so that you can have that a little bit more bestoke feeling mm-hmm. for each person, particularly because everyone's job is a little bit different and their compliance concerns will be a little bit different. And also the way they process compliance will be very different because there are like some people who you don't have to worry about their execution methodology, right? They're going to execute it. Like if they get close to the chalk line, they'll be fine. Then there are some people like you need 10 feet from the chalk line. Because even if you give them all the right instructions, they're going to get close to the chalk line anyway, totally. right? Yeah. So knowing that about each customer that you're dealing with, especially on the compliance front, I think that's going to be really, really helpful. And then hopefully technology will be leveraged enough so that we can also understand how everybody's interpreting the code of conduct. Because I've come to understand, like just watching where I'm coming from, like everyone interprets the same phrases very differently and internalizes it differently. Interesting. Say, no risk. Oh, we don't have to follow the law. No, no, no. There's somewhere in the middle. And that, you know, there's a reason for the three bears and Goldilocks story, I think. I think we as human beings have such a hard time with the just right. It's either all or nothing. Right. Um, especially, you know, so there's something interesting in there. It's almost like we're comfortable in our own gray and we're comfortable, yeah. like, of course, that in my own life, it's not all or nothing and it's not binary and it's not, you know, one or the other. But it's almost like we sort of like cast this uh, black or white thing on somebody else's life, right? So when compliance comes and tries to talk about this thing to us, well, we almost sort of try to interpret it as one or the other. And if it's not going to be totally one and I can't achieve the other, then I'm just going to kind of ignore it. And that leads to a lot of like sort of risk pockets that can pop up in our organizations. Yep. And collectively become a big concern. But we we need to learn how to identify the gray in other people's world. Or as one of my negotiation coaches said, Alan and Dan Oplinger, there, you need to get into the other person's world. Like yeah. we so live in our world. That's great. Doesn't matter. They don't care about your world. That's right. You need to focus on their world. Um, and again, just bringing that kind of a posture to this to this job and understanding that our role is to translate all these things that are going to help keep the organization out of jail or keep folks out of trouble or reduce risk or reinforce our culture and our bottom line. 
need to be translated into the lives of these other individuals. Yeah. And you can't paint in these broad brushstrokes and you can't walk no. around with a writing crap or swinging a hammer no. and getting folks to actually authentically do it. We, mm -hmm. The battle is kind of won in that sort of discretionary effort area that is over and above that bottom line that people need to sort of, you know, perform to to keep their job. The magic is in someone going above and beyond, right? But that's only going to come yeah. if you get them and the, and you can show them that it's in their best interest to, you know, do what you need them to do. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And, and a lot of that is, a lot of that is having more, I think, mentors and examples Yeah, right. where that can be outlined. But it's also, I think you have to understand, like sometimes people are just going to meet the minimum and that's it, right? Because sure. there are different seasons to people's lives and different priorities in people's lives. And we sort of have to kind of understand and be okay with that. And then there's some people who've hit like the next stage of their lives after all their kids have left, right? What other second opportunities are there for them to grow and to, to nurture, right? Um, and to do something different. And I think we sort of have to, when we look at our, all, all our employees, whether compliance or not, we have to look for those opportunities and kind of understand which season of life they're in and have a candid conversation with them about that, right? Because some people want to do everything. Yeah, and right. it's like, okay, um, but like, yeah, you can't, but if I tell you, you can't, then that's a problem, right? But you have to come to that realization as you kind of run around with no sleep and you're cranky as all get out, right? <laughs> so, you know, what are the stories, frankly, that we tell ourselves to propel ourselves forward, but also to keep us safe yeah. and sometimes prevents us from taking risk? Or what are the stories we tell ourselves that we become reckless and foolish in the number of risks we take, Right. And it's, it's managing that within us because we are creatures, as my friend um, Dan Greenwald says of StoryWatch, like we are creatures. And so how do we manage that constantly? And, and how do we record those stories so we can start seeing those patterns? Like for me, I started recording all my habits and I realized like, heck, if I don't get a good night's sleep, <laughs> like walking 10,000 steps, like yeah. weightlifting, any of like the good healthy habits are screwed. Right. Like the, what, you know, so what is foundational in your life and really sort of kind of drilling down at that is going to be really important. Um, but we're so busy that we don't think about that. Or even if we subconsciously realize it, we subsume it because, oh, my God, I need to accomplish this 100 things. Right. I'm going to go without sleep. Yeah. And you and, you know, the body is a very interesting anti-fragile thing. And we as human beings are very we can adapt to so much. So you can get yeah. used to walking around with a rock in your boot for a long time. And pretty yeah. soon you don't even notice it. And yet yeah. you still can't with that in your boot. You can't run as fast as you otherwise could, you know? No. Yes. So. So, yeah. so the let's say the compliance officer of tomorrow, the ethics uh, expert of tomorrow, what do they look like and what skills are they going to have just sort of foundational in them? that are going to allow them to really elevate. Cause you know, my broad kind of thesis is that this next decade, the decade that we're in, we're going to see a massive separation. We're moving into compliance 3.0. It's about effectiveness. It's not just about efficiency to your point from before. Yeah. Um, what do you think those, those compliance folks are going to be able to do um, from a risk-based perspective, from an influence, from an influence perspective, from just an overall, you know, effectiveness perspective that, you know, somebody from 2009 wasn't able to do. Um, I think because of the maturation of the compliance profession as a discipline and as a craft, frankly, um, I think that the compliance 3.0, like the compliance directors of the future are going to have to have um, curiosity, emotional intelligence, mm. um, and understand other disciplines uh, like business, right? Understand other disciplines better in order to ask those questions. And they need to be patient, Right and sort of understand like things take time yeah. and also be curious 
and also understand other languages, not just like English, but know a language or two, um, because languages have built-in assumptions within them about who is powerful and who is not. Mm. And sometimes understanding that will make it easier for certain American compliance things to get translated overseas, right? And especially as we're all multinational, Mm -hmm. right? All international, that is gonna be so, so, so very important. Um, And so those are the pieces that I see Compliance 3.0 sort of going forward to is being much more fluent in different types of literacy, cultural literacy, financial literacy, language literacy, people literacy, generational literacy. So like those are the things that um, an officer of the future, I think, in this compliance as a craft will really need to develop. I love that. And I love that you threw patience in the mix there. And I love that you threw curiosity. And, you know, so many of those things like this is uh, this is kind of a caricature, but like you you don't learn any of those things really in law school. You don't read any of those things in a textbook. Those are all human things. Those are all kind of getting outside of the world are outside in the world types of well, things that are going to be pick, you know, new colors on your, on your palette. Right. Um, let's jump to, uh, that article we were talking about that, uh, that outsourcing of compliance. It's such like, a, I think, I, I think Richard wrote that. Um, yes, he did. so kind of first for people who haven't read it, let's give like a little summary of it and then we can talk about how insane it is. Yeah, no. Um, so Richard, um, wrote about um, outsourcing compliance and that question's coming up because, you know, IT outsourcing worked out so well for most companies. I think his pushback to that is compliance officers are gatekeepers. They're not just like someone who performs a service, right? Yeah, totally. They need to understand the business. They need to manage the risk. And someone who goes outside, someone, when you go outside, they don't understand the business. They don't understand what risk. They don't understand the personalities who are involved. Right. And so... They're just going to give you the answer you want, and it makes it easy to go forum shopping and saying, this is the answer that I got, right? So I'm going to take this answer because I like this answer. Whereas like inside, you're not going to be able to forum shop like that or have, you know, have inside and outside compliance directors compete like that. What you're going to end up creating is a forum shopping nightmare, right? And just same thing with legal. If you're going to do that, you're going to have a legal answer um, shopping nightmare. Um, I, I do tend to agree with Richard. I think the bigger question is how do you, develop compliance directors and compliance managers to be as sharp as the people quote outside. Cause I think there's a tendency in most of corporate America to think that consultants would come with all the answers yeah. right? and inside employees don't. Yeah. They ride and in I, on a magic carpet yes. with their bag of answers. Yeah. Exactly. Yes. Um, <laughs> and so, but I think that with respect to compliance, it's not just a service. It's not like it where they're going to fix your computers and they're going to fix your software it's, it's more ingrained in the quilt of the company, right? It's part of the fabric of the company as opposed to this like strange object out there. Yeah, exactly. And, and understanding the culture, the people, how they react, how they're going to behave. Um, and more so, and then like the talent management future, like compliance is this sort of odd thing because really HR and compliance sort of sh- probably should be merged in because there's so much people watching. It's all people. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And people and, and people development involved in it. And so I don't I, I tend to agree with Richard. I don't think compliance should be outsourced for that reason because no one's gonna understand the insides of your company better than most compliance people. But the challenge is to how to keep their skills sharp. So if I'm just kind of thinking through like outsourceable on one end of the spectrum and then non outsourceable yep. on the other end of the spectrum, you can think about IT, you can probably outsource that law. You know, your yeah. legal, you can yeah. outsource depending on the complexity of your organization, yeah. kind of working back from there. 
perhaps finance, right? Yep. Like those are all ones and zeros or those are all debits and yeah. credits, right? But then yep. you start getting into like HR. Mm, maybe at a certain size you can outsource it, but once you get beyond a, a, a certain size, there's going to be too much complexity. Well, the, the, the HR things I've seen outsourced are like the mental health services, the FMLA, right? Sure. Like things that are more one and zeros, right? Okay, sure. Yeah. Or payroll, right? That's easily yep. outsourceable for sure. Yep. But like to your point, like, actually executing an HR strategy yeah. within an, strategy, an organization, no. or even if you're outsourcing it to a PEO or something like that for a smaller company, you still are going to need somebody in-house to execute it and make the, yeah. you know, yeah. plug the stuff in, so to speak. Right. Yep. And yep. I just think compliance and ethics are like so much further down. Yes. You know what I'm saying? Toward the like unoutsourceable uh, end of the spectrum. It's because the soul and heart of the, of the organization. That's the problem. Yeah. yeah. And you can't and really outsource that. You can't really outsource the method uh, or the means by which you can possibly start to crowdsource risk management. Yeah, no. And I think part of it, you know, sometimes I wonder with outsourcing, if it's our unwillingness to be honest with ourselves about certain things. And so instead of kind of taking care of it from an HR perspective, right, we're just like, all right, fine, department's gone, we're outsourcing it. Done. And it's, it's right. a way to, yeah, done. I mean, um, I think Ron Carucci has a book out that's coming soon about you know, to be honest. Yeah. And he really sort of questions the fabric and the, and it's about having honest conversations. Right. And so that, that's, that's something that I think, I mean, I think all compliance directors should read that book because it's, yeah. I've, I read it and it's very, very illuminating so from that I. perspective. Like, it's a freaking amazing you, yeah. book. Yeah. Uh, it's so eye opening and it yeah. adds a certain dimensionality to our role that a yeah. lot of folks back in compliance 1.0 and frankly in compliance 2.0, those people who are 2. still 0, just yeah. focused on efficiency, they're not getting and when no. we can understand that our job is really to activate the honesty element in the company or um, to build this cultural piece out, then we can really start to unleash the magic in the workforce. Then we can start crowdsourcing risk management. Then our to-do our to list starts to shrink because you're not shrink. putting out all these yeah. little fires. You're actually no. elevating the company. Elevating company. And I think on honesty, I think so often I see this, we lose sight of the fact that we should be arguing about ideas. And somehow it becomes character assassination along the yeah, way. Totally. And you're like, whoa, 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 time out, right? Focus on the ideas, right? Take your work seriously, but don't take yourself seriously. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, just figure those pieces out. And I think that's where honesty dies because so much of it we kind of internalize because nobody really speaks up at meetings and we're afraid to. Or again, I think two things like destroy honesty. I think number one, it's because we've forgotten how to be civil and argue about ideas. And I think the other thing is that I think people are just, you know, terrified of saying anything and things being misconstrued instead of having an, a very open dialogue about it and talking about things sort of openly and kind of working through things together right. rather than assuming the worst intent out of everyone. Well, and think, think of the irony of this, uh, yeah. the department of Speak Up, the, the department that in order to really actualize yeah. and achieve the true crowdsourcing of risk management, you need people to speak up. They're not yeah. even modeling speaking up within their no. own role in, in their organization. No. It's crazy. No, no. So, and that's, and that's, I think that's the struggle. I, I hope, I think what Ron proposes is going to be a little bit trickier for very large organizations. I you think, think so. And small, yeah, definitely Why? can. I, I think for large multinational organizations, the definition of honest is going to be different in every country. Sure. That's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and the, and because of cultural and societal hierarchies in certain countries, I don't think you're allowed to even be honest quote with someone who is quote, you know, 
higher rank than you are. And that's, you know, that's going to be, that's going to be the really tricky part with multinational companies is how do you get past everyone's cultural norms? And the reality is you can't, not right now anyway. Well, it's like they say, you know, um, start in your own backyard. You know what I'm saying? Yes. I mean, you can at mm-hmm. least start on your own team where yep. those, where those dynamics can work. And, you know, maybe those will be translated as you go kind of in the multinational yep. area. Um, well, listen, I've really enjoyed this. This has been a lot of fun. No, thank you so much for having uh, me on. Yeah, this is, uh, this is great. It's super, uh, opening and, um, you just bring so, you, you know, you bring such a unique perspective to this game and I don't know what it's from. It's from your heart. It's from your background. It's from the experiences that you've had, but you as a thought leader, you just bring a lot to the table. How can people find you? How can people learn more about you and get in touch with you? Um, so I'm on LinkedIn. I'm also on Twitter it's, and Twitter's super easy at Jenny Kim. Uh, and I also publish a weekly newsletter um, called Trade-Offs and Triumphs, and it's a newsletter of resources focused on identifying the trade-offs we make every day. It started for me last August because our dishwasher broke and my mother refuses to have dirty dishes. So I had to figure out, do I buy a new dishwasher or do I repair it? It's 20 years old to get it. We're buying a new one. How much, do you need, how much can I pay you so you can deliver it like tomorrow? Right. Um, that was my trade-off. Um, and then to experience the small triumphs in life. And so it's mainly focused on like sharing stories about different trade-offs we make, kind of communications and language and culture. Um, and also wrote about Ron's book uh, a couple of weeks ago. Awesome. But that, those are the ways to really find me. Twitter, LinkedIn, and that uh, weekly newsletter. at uh, It's on Substack, jennykim.substack.com. Okay, cool. Well, thanks so much for joining us. This was uh, really a blast. And uh, Nick, we will see you again honor. soon. All right, take care.